Hey there, my name is Roy and I'm the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. We're so glad today that you've joined us for our online service. Uh, today we're into part four of a series called, What Would Jesus Actually Do? Now maybe in the 90s you saw those bracelets that people were wearing, WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? And it was sort of a filter for Christians to kind of the decision-making process. You know, in a, in the, a similar situation, what would Jesus do? And so we've called this series, What Would Jesus Actually Do? Because sometimes we like to imply what Jesus would do because it meets our preferences or it's what we would want Jesus to do. So we're looking at the scriptures to see what Jesus actually did to know what Jesus would actually do. Well, a couple from Arthur decided to go to Florida to fly out this time of year. It's really cold. And, and they just planned to stay in the same hotel where they had spent their 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 honeymoon 20 years prior because of their hectic schedules it was it was difficult for the couple to to coordinate their travel plans so the husband left and flew out of Pearson and he flew to, to Florida on the Thursday the wife had planned to fly out the next day on the Friday and so the husband checked into the hotel and uh, inside the the room there was a computer there and so he decided to send his wife an email However, he accidentally left one letter out of her email address and he sent the email without realizing what his, his error was. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, a widow had just returned home from her husband's funeral. He was a Baptist minister who was called home to glory following a heart attack. And the widow decided to check her email, expecting that there would be condolence messages from her friends and family. But after reading her very first email, she screamed and fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room, found his mother laying on the floor, and he saw the computer screen which read this. To my loving wife, I know you're surprised to hear from me. They have computers here now so that, they, that you can send emails to your loved ones. I've just arrived and been checked in. I've seen that everything is prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hopefully, your, your journey was as uneventful as mine was. P.S. Dress light. It sure is hot down here. Now, seeing something from the wrong perspective, at the very least, can be shocking. A, a misunderstanding, but seeing life from the wrong perspective or seeing God from the wrong angle can impact everything. That was the climate that Jesus came into when he walked into history. It, when people thought they knew, um, they knew God and they knew what it was, was to be in right relationship with God. And then Jesus comes on the scene and, and, and some of the first teachings he has where he begins with this phrase. You've heard it said this, but I say unto you. You've heard this said, you've been taught this by religious leaders, but let me show you a different way. Many of the religious people of, this, of that day didn't know what to do with Jesus. He, was, he wasn't just preaching countercultural, but he was also preaching counterintuitive. It went against not only what they were taught by the religious leaders, but also went against what they felt was right during that time. Because you see, many of the people of Jesus' day put a lot of their, their focus on their outside faith, on how they presented themselves, how they looked to others. And let's face it, it's really not that much different today for many people. They thought that faith in God was measured by your outward appearance, looking the right way, dressing the right way, saying the right things, keeping the right rituals, following the right rules. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, no, 
No, it's the inside that matters, not the outside. Faith is an inside-out job. God begins by changing you from the inside, by changing your heart, and then your, the outward reflects what's going on inside. And so Jesus de- depicts this mindset when he's speaking to the religious leaders one day. In Matthew 23, 27, it says this, What sorrows await you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. You see, that's an indictment that should be a warning for every generation. Because you know some people that used to go to church. Or maybe you used to go to church yourself. Maybe it's your kids that used to come, but they don't come anymore. And the thing that turned them off of faith, or closed the door on them even considering faith, was not Jesus. It wasn't Jesus' message of love and mercy and grace. It was whitewashed tombs that, of people they'd seen in church. People that put on their Sunday best, but their inside was full of gossip and, and, and hurtful words and abuse and deceit and pride and anger. You see, it doesn't matter how much you pretty up a tomb. It doesn't matter how nice the gravestone looks. I still know what's inside. It's still a place I don't want to go to. And so Jesus has no time or no patience for Christian theatrics. Putting on a show in front of a crowd, but then going back and taking off the makeup and the costume backstage to be someone completely different. If you have your Bible with you or your Bible app, you can turn to Luke chapter 18. Well, this past Saturday, there there was a tragic story out of Colorado where a young couple was snowshoeing with their dog uh, near the mountains, only to be swept up by a 400-foot-wide avalanche and tragically were killed. And I was surprised to learn while I was reading this story that avalanches are actually quite common, and 150 people every year worldwide are killed by avalanches. I also discovered some interesting information that may come in handy one day. Now, if you've been kind of dozed off up to this point, you might want to listen. If you, you get nothing out of the sermon, this part might just actually save your life. Experts say that a common mistake that many people make when they get caught up in an avalanche, because you get spun around, you get flipped around, you get, you get knocked around, and, is, and once everything settles, is people start trying to dig their way out. But many times, because they're disoriented, because they're not sure which way is up and which way is down, they end up digging down instead of up. So instead of getting closer to freedom, they actually are making their situation worse. Popular uh, science magazine gave an example of a a guy they found dead in an avalanche that had dug 30 feet before giving up. But he had dug 30 feet down. The whole time he thought he was going up, but he actually was going down. And you can imagine, it would all happen so fast. Like, an avalanche happens so fast, you kind of get knocked around, you get disoriented, you're, you're likely hurt, panic starts to set in. And, but experts gave some tips what to do in case this ever you ever come into this situation. And they said, what you should do is you should get your hand free and you should dig out a spot around your face. And then you should spit. And if the spit goes up and comes back and hits you in the face, then you know that you're facing upwards. But if you spit and the, and the spit doesn't come back to you, 
then you know you're facing downwards. You need to turn around. You need to turn around and get yourself out that way. And so what this little test does is it gives you this quick reality check. It changes your perspective. Because you might think that you're facing up, but then you realize that the spit didn't come back. I'm actually facing down. You need to turn yourself around. And so Jesus comes to earth and he gives people a reality check. People who think they're going up, but they're actually going down. And he says, perhaps the way to the top is a different direction than what you think. Which brings us to Luke chapter 18, verse 14 says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see what Jesus does here? He challenges the culture. He challenges the direction that they think is up. And said, here's the truth. If you want to be exalted, culture says there's a way to do this. Culture says make more of yourself. Culture says promote yourself as often as you can. Climb over whoever you need to climb over to get to the top. Show off your awards. Shout out your accomplishments. Retweet yourself. But if you truly want to be exalted, dig the opposite direction. Humble yourself. And what Jesus does is he redefines greatness. He says the way to greatness is not up. It's down. It's not something you ascend to. It's something you descend to. And so Jesus is going to teach us that through a parable. And in this parable, there are two characters. The first character is the Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were the, the religious leaders of the day. If there was a Jewish uh, societal uh, corporate ladder, they were at the top. They were at the top. The second character is the tax collector. And we've, we've mentioned, his, mentioned numerous occasions what a tax collector is, but tax collectors were despised. And not just because they collected taxes, because obviously that doesn't make you very popular, but because they were seen as traitors. They were Jewish men who were farmed out by the Romans to collect taxes from their own people. And they profited from it and sometimes skimmed off the top as well. Financially, they were very well off. Socially, they were at the bottom of the ladder. So people wanted to be the Pharisee. People wanted to be nowhere near the tax collector. So you have two people on both ends of the scale. And watch what Jesus does with both of them. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, he says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Okay, so let's stop there for a moment. Who are these people? Who, who is Jesus' audience that had great confidence in their own righteousness and, and looked down on other people? Well, if you're reading this and you're thinking, this is not talking about me, well, it's probably talking about you. The people that read this and think, I'm not sure who this is talking about, but I know it's not me. It's you. Verse 10 says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, I thank you, God. I thank you that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. So the Pharisee, first of all, prays standing for a reason. He, he wants to be seen. He wants people around him to see him prominently and what he's doing. And then he begins to pray. And what does he pray for? He prays for himself. The focus was all about him. He starts by giving God thanks. Which, I mean, that's good. I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to debate that. Except, he says, God, thank you. 
Thank you that I'm not like the other people. Can you imagine praying that? Can you imagine praying, thank you, God, I'm not like other people? Imagine praying, God, I'd like to thank you. God, I'd especially like to thank you that I'm better than everyone else. That's ridiculous. And I read that and I think, I'd never pray that. I'd never pray that. Do you see kind of what happens? I'm glad I'm not like the guy who says, I'm glad I'm not like the guy. And that's where we can go if we're not careful. So you have this religious leader who thanks God for not being like the other guy. And we may not say those words exactly, but a lot of what we say reveals a similar spirit. And maybe we don't say this out loud, but we think it or we imply it. Because our pride gets in the way. Here's a few examples of things that we say that kind of allude to our pride. Number one, you aren't going to talk to me like that. You aren't going to talk to me like that. That's a spirit of pride that says, I'm better than you. Do you know who you're talking to? And it's not that someone's trying to be rude with you. They're, they're just opposing maybe a viewpoint or they're trying to point something out, something in you. And it's just that anytime someone tries to confront you about something or try to point out a character flaw, you get defensive and aggressive and you shut it down. So no one even bothers trying anymore. See, if you don't have someone in your life that talks to you like that, it's, because, it's not because you don't need correction or you don't need to have some tough conversations. It's because you've put up a wall that says, you aren't going to talk to me like that. And if you do, watch out. Because I will lash out. I will not take this very well. Another thing that we say or, or, or think that or say, or, or another thing that we think that communicates our pride is, I'm not going to be the first one to apologize. I'm not going to be the one to apologize. They want to apologize to me, I'll listen, but I'm not going to be the one to apologize. And that's pride. It's pride. Pride says, I'm better than you. I'm not about to apologize to someone that's inferior. You might never say those words, I'm better than someone. But you don't have to. Because when you refuse to say, I'm sorry, when you refuse to say, I messed up, when you refuse to say, I was wrong, it was my fault, what we're saying is, I'm better than they are. Another thing we might say or, or think is this. It's not me, it's you. It's not my problem, it's, you, it's theirs. Someone asks you, hey, what's going on with you and so-and-so? Well, what, what's going on with your relationship? And you're like, I don't know, ask them. I'm fine. It's their problem. They're making a big deal out of this. Meanwhile, I'm calm and collected. They're so dramatic. I'm rational and wise. See, pride puts everyone else under a microscope and lets us off the hook. I mean, Jesus said it this way, is that pride will make you point out a speck in somebody else's eye while you've got a plank in your own. Here's an example. How gracious are you when you're driving? I mean, some people are so tightly wound, like they just fly off the handle over everything. They're just, they're just driving around angry. I don't think that's me. I mean, I, I don't usually lay on my horn. Uh, it's like a last resort. I don't like doing it. However, I have been known to maybe sarcastically comment on my uh, fellow irresponsible drivers. Something like, oh my goodness, look at this moron. What is he doing? He's going to kill somebody. This is unbelievable. 
And, and this, one, this one interaction has caused me to, to make a judgment about how they are as a driver. But it's funny because every once in a while, and it doesn't matter how good a drive you are, we all make one of those dumb mistakes, you know, where you kind of pull out too early, or you cut somebody off by an accident, or somebody's in a blind spot and you kind of cut them off, and instantly you know right away, ah, I, I messed up. I, I feel foolish in this moment. I actually kind of feel embarrassed because you consider yourself a good driver and you don't feel like this one mistake actually represents your driving capabilities. And then they lay on the horn or they yell something or they give you the stare down or they put their hands in the air. Or they give you the dreaded, like, what are you thinking type thing. And you think, what's your problem? Show me some grace here. It was a simple mistake. See, pride puts everyone else under a microscope and lets you off the hook. Here's another one that pride, pride says, it's not fair. It's not fair. I mean, it makes sense. If, I'm, if I think I'm better than someone else and they get something that I think I deserved, it's not fair. I should have got the promotion. I'm so much more capable. It's not fair that they drive that type of car. It's not fair that they go on vacation in this spot. I, I work harder than they do. See, if I can't celebrate with people for the good things that they have in their life, it reveals something about me. I have pride. I think I'm better. Here's another one that reveals our pride. Did you hear about... See, pride makes me feel better when I talk about other people, when I talk poorly about other people, which is, is gossip. See, the next time someone comes to you and they lead with this, did you hear about what they're doing is they're outing themselves. They're outing themselves. They're saying to you, I have pride issues. I would never do what I'm about to tell you because I'm better than that. Here's another one. I don't need help. See, you notice in the Pharisee's prayer, he doesn't ask for help. He's got everything in check. Everything is handled. He just wants to tell God uh, how great he is and all the great things that he's doing. See, pride can keep us from admitting our dependence on God. Pride can keep us from asking for help from others as well. Because we don't want to admit that someone could do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. And so we, we never say, I'm better than someone else. But we say it, either with other words, like the ones we discussed, or with our thoughts and actions. And so Jesus shows us this through the Pharisee. For the Pharisee, outward appearance is far more important than inward devotion. It's a performance-based faith. Jesus said about, said about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 5, he says, Everything they do is for show. Everything they do is for show. See, the Pharisee stood while praying so that he could be seen. Likely the volume of his prayer was a volume that everyone could hear because he wanted them to hear. A prayer that consisted of three sentences but used the word I five times. Public appearance led people to think that this man was closer to God. He was more justified in the eyes of God than he actually was. And in 2022... Things aren't much better. In fact, if we want people to get an impression of us, especially an impression that we get to control, we've got easier ways to do it than then. 
For the Pharisee to make a public impression, it was limited to the people that were in attendance when he made this big public display. Today, I can reach hundreds, thousands through social media. And I get to control what is shown. And I'm not against social media. I use it all the time. But we have to be careful that we don't fall into this trap of promoting a false picture of who we are. Because Jesus isn't fooled. Here's an example. I've seen this a bunch of times. People who have video recorded themselves giving food or, or money to a homeless person on the street. Or, or you'll see one of these feel-good videos of um, some, some like junior high boys. They'll all get together and they've got this one kid in their class who's just like, he's not very well off. And he's got really, really like, he's got really old shoes or whatever. And they'll kind of get together and they'll decide they're all going to chip in. They're going to buy him a nice pair of shoes, like a pair of Air Jordans or something. And, and this video goes all viral and, and there's thousands of comments talking about what great young men these guys are. And let's be honest, we need more of that. We need those type of things. And I, and I think it's such a great thing to do. And the gesture is really great. It really is. But my thoughts always go to, why are you recording this? Why are you videotaping this? I mean, it starts to, it starts to I now start to question motive at that point. Because if the, the gesture is truly from a sincere, broken heart, then let the good deed in itself be all the reward that you need. Why do you have to videotape that? Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. We don't do that, blow trumpets in the synagogues. Instead, we broadcast it to YouTube, and then we tag all our friends. I tell you the truth, they've received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. I know some really generous people that struggle with this. I mean, their heart's in the right place, but they have this tendency to always go out of their way to let people know what they gave or how much they gave or who they gave to. And Jesus says, your pride required admiration from others. Your pride robbed you of the reward that God has for you. Because your public admiration is now your reward. And that reward has now been paid in full. But God's got something more for you if you do it in private. See, here's the danger. If we put more value in our outward appearance of faith, we put our confidence more in our accomplishments and less in what Jesus accomplished. Here's what I did. Here's what I know. Here's what I gave. So when it comes to talking about our faith, we tend to talk or, or we focus on what we've done. I sing on the worship team. I'm a board member. I, I gave this amount of money to the church each year. I went on this missions trip. I, 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 I. Does it sound familiar? Warren Wiersbe is a, is a great author of political comment, or biblical commentaries. And he's been incredibly helpful for me over the years in my study of the Bible. And here's what he says about the Pharisees in this parable. He says, the great sin of the Pharisees was hypocrisy, play acting, based on pride. 
The religion was external, not internal. It was to impress people, not to please God. They bound people with heavy burdens while Christ came to set people free. They loved titles and public recognition and exalted themselves, here's the key, at the expense of others. And then Jesus shows us the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, verse 13 and 14. It says, But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not to even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and said, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. The contrast of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee stands to be seen. This tax collector stands at a distance to not be seen. Not even wanting to be able to look up to heaven. Here's a question for you. When was the last time you prayed at a distance? Meaning, when was the last time that you prayed and it wasn't at church? And it wasn't at a prayer meeting and it wasn't at the dinner table, but it was just quietly out of the view of others, just you and God. It says he was unable to look up to heaven. The tax collector recognizes his sinfulness in comparison to God's holiness. It's a true sign of humility. And then he beats his chest and he begs God for mercy because he is a sinner. And what we see is the outward action of something that's originating inside. There's this emotion escaping the tax collector. This is not just a man reciting a bunch of prayers that he learned as a kid. It's not a man who's barely barely mouthing the words to a song that's projected on the wall at church while he looks at his watch. It is the It's the overflow of what's happening inside of him. And it's worship. It's true worship. Then you have a Pharisee who thinks that God should be impressed by him. On the other side, you have a tax collector who knows he's done nothing that is impressive. Oh God, be merciful to me. And then Jesus ends the story by highlighting for his audience that they are actually digging in the wrong direction. He rebukes the prayer of the Pharisee. And he commends the prayer of the tax collector. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I'm pretty sure there was an awkward silence after that. His audience just, their mind's racing, and it's like, Wait, Jesus, this is kind of embarrassing, but I think you mixed them up. The Pharisee was the one that was justified. I mean, you even said so in your story. He fasted twice a week, more than the law even requires. He, he tied 10% of everything that he had. He's done everything that God requires and even more. The tax collector, on the other hand, he even admitted it. He's a sinner. Pretty sure you mixed them up, Jesus. It's okay. I mean, we all make mistakes, but maybe from now on you should preach with notes because make sure you don't mess that up again. But then you start to realize that maybe the things that Jesus is looking for and what you and I think are impressive might be different things. Here's the thing. For some people, going to church on a Sunday is their outward, outward faith action step. Just being in the building. That's what they believe justifies them before God. Then there's nothing that looks like faith at home 
This is it, just being here. Now for others, they come to church because they believe it'll make them a better person and make their kids better people. That church can help them find an answer to their problems. And so they come here and they're, they're looking for help with their addiction or their finances or their relationships or their marriage or help me be a better par parent or a better student. Uh, help me be the type of person that can get a date. Help me be a better neighbor, a better friend. And the truth is we all need help. And church is a, a place to find those answers. And, and so we come to church and we want some action steps. Like, tell me what I need to do to fix this. And so we focus just naturally on the outside things. But if you want to be justified before God, showing up to church isn't enough. If you want to be a better person, there's no substitute for this one key action. If you want to know what to do, here it is. Humble yourself before God. That's the key. Humble yourself before God. To which, maybe you're thinking, okay, that's, that's good. Humble myself, that, that's good. But what do I need to do to fix my marriage? Uh, humble myself, but what do I need to beat this addiction? What do I need to do? Just like, give me some steps. Just tell me what to do. Do you want to know what to do? You stand at a distance. You beat your chest. And you say, God have mercy. You don't make your case. You don't tell God why you're worthy. Don't tell God what you've done. You just beat your chest and you cry out to God, God have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And there's no substitution to humbling yourself before God. Do you want to be exalted? Well, Jesus says those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we don't, we, this, this series is called, What Would Jesus Actually Do? Well, we, don't have to, we don't have to search too far in Scripture to find that Jesus didn't just say this, but he did this. Philippians 2, verse 5 says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Then he appeared in human form. Humble, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on a cross. I mean, if anyone had a reason to make a case that he was worthy, to believe that they were better than anyone else, it was Jesus. And yet he humbled himself before the Father, and ultimately he laid down his life for you and I. Humble yourself before God. This, this is an action. This is something that you do for yourself. This is something you do. Let me give you a couple of examples and, and then we'll be done. Number one, confess your sins regularly. I mean, if you want to humble yourself, confess your sins regularly. I mean, I can go and I can cover up my sins. I can let my pride convince me I've got it all together, that I'm good, I, I don't need to confess. But eventually your sins have this way of rising to the surface and, and, and humbling you for you. And that's not the same. I can be humbled, but I'm not exalted in that moment. But when I confess, I humble myself. Number two, give anonymously. Resist the temptation that like, you feel like you need to get credit from somebody else to tell others. But when we choose to give 
and it's just between you and God, and you give sacrificially something that causes you sacrifice. It's this act of humbling yourself, and it's a clear statement that you are less important than the kingdom of God. Number three, treat others better than you. Paul says, in humility, treat others above yourself. This is much different than the message that our culture keeps repeating in every area of your life. You have an opportunity every day to humble yourself and treat someone as if they are more valuable than you are. To put their needs above your needs. And when you do, God says he will exalt those that humble themselves. Number four, ask for help. This is hard for some people. This is hard for me. As a pastor, I need to ask for help more often than I do. People are like, but you're a pastor. Don't you have all the answers? No, I don't. I absolutely don't. Actually, it seems like the wiser I get, the, the more I find out I know actually less than what I thought I did. It's humbling to take initiative and ask for help. To admit, I don't know what to do. Help me. Humble yourself. Let me finish with this. The last verse we just read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 said he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And the next verse says this, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Therefore, because he humbled himself, God elevated him. God exalted him to the place of the highest honor. Verse 10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus is, Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this says that one day, every person, no matter who it is, will be humbled. You either choose to humble yourself or one day we will all be humbled. Today is the opportunity for you to humble yourself. And God says that when you do, his promise to you is that you will be exalted. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our culture teaches one thing, that it's all about us, that we, that we should make our names great. And yet Jesus comes to this earth and he teaches the opposite. It's, it's, not, the, it's, it's not the aggressive, it's not the, the self-promoters, it's not the boastful that will be exalted. That, that's temporary. But it's the humble, long-term, that become exalted. It's the humble that benefit. And so, God, let us be a people that learn to humble ourselves, that look for opportunities to humble ourselves, that look for opportunities for us to not think of ourselves first, but to put others ahead of us. And as we do that, Lord, as we humble ourselves before you, it's in those moments where we will start to see some of our relationships repaired. It's in those moments where we will see some of the, the, the things, our friendships, some of the things that we, that we desire come to come to light that that job that we want when we humble ourselves it will be noticed and, and we will we'll see things doors open that we didn't didn't see before it's the humble that will be exalted so god allow us to be those that seek humility allow us to be the ones that humble ourselves before we're humbled 
And God, we, uh, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.